Hello, listener, and welcome to That Implementation Science Podcast, the show that aims to reduce the innovation to implementation gap to 16 and a half years. I'm your host, Mike Pullman, and on today's show, I talk with co-host Kevin King about fidelity measurement. We will review a recent paper on the topic, weigh the pros and cons of different fidelity measurement methods, evaluate the fidelity of Kevin's banjo skills, and draw a picture with a thousand words. If you like the show, the best thing you can do is tell your friends and colleagues. Tweet about it, post it on your socials, and add it to your Tinder profile. If you want to talk to us, we're on Twitter. I'm at ThatISPodcast, and Kevin is at KMKing underscore psych. I think you're really going to like today's show. Without further ado, let's get started. So, Mike, I, I know you know this about me, but um, not many people know that I'm a, a devoted fan and um, I would say begin intermediate practitioner of uh, the Irish tenor banjo. So oh, yeah. No, I, I, I know that. And I, uh, I've heard you twanging, twanging away in my in my living room. For sure. Yeah, that, that is true. And in fact, I remember I remember the year that your son was born. I asked you, what do you look forward to in the year ahead? And you said, learning my banjo scales. <laughs> That is true. Well, learning banjo scales is much more rewarding than um, <laughs> many aspects of parenting a newborn, especially when they're crying and uh, <laughs> ejecting fluids all over, you know, all over the place that you have to clean up. Not that parenting is ultimately not more rewarding than music playing. <laughs> well, and actually, you know, I think like actually parenting and banjo playing have uh, some parallels in a way is in that you, you like have some vision of what you're trying to do as a parent or as a, you know, a banjo player. Um, and a lot of sort of, a lot of parenting and a lot of mu music is about like striving towards that ideal you have in your head and not necessarily making it. And it, it, I've, and really honestly with both, I've been thinking a lot about how, you know, our, the way we think about fidelity, this notion of fidelity in the field, you know, there's just a lot of parallels to things in our real life. So whether it's, you know, me, trying to uh, properly execute time out with my kids and wondering like, am I doing it right? What should I be doing differently? How, is this actually working? Am I, you know, am I effective with this? Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing or am I adapting to the circumstances of the moment? Is that, did I make the right choice? You know, there's all this, like, at least for me, maybe there's not other people, but for me, there's always this like tape recorder in my head of like, you know, self-criticism that's always wondering, is this, am I doing this right? Uh, you know, and sort of more lighthearted frame. Um, it's true with music too. You know, you listen to music that you try to emulate, and you can play the notes right. You know, um, but some somehow even just like playing the notes doesn't always sound it right. You might not get the, you know, the rhythm correctly, or maybe there's notes written on a page. But when you see somebody play, they add all sorts, you know, all sorts of extra stuff. They might add ornaments to it, or their rhythm is different than what it seems like if you just put the music from a computer and. There's this difference, you know, between what you hope to be able to accomplish and maybe what you have in your head or what you see out there and where you actually are. And it makes me think about how, you know, how hard it is to measure and think about fidelity and even sometimes define it 
in a sense. Um, I, I don't know. I just, th those are sort of random thoughts prompted by the article. I think you, you sent yeah. me. Uh, yeah, totally. Totally. I mean, I feel like for implementation science, obviously fidelity is one of the most important outcomes that we're looking at. It's uh, essential for uh, replicating or implementing something uh, because, you know, what we do is we have these studies that have been done on some sort of intervention. It's been shown to work somewhere. And then we want to, we want to replicate that. We want to make that happen in uh, another setting which means that you have to do it in the same way for it to replicate, right? We can't assume, you know, there's this basic thing that I'm probably going to talk about a lot during this podcast, the principle of the uniformity of nature. And it undergirds all of science, really. The, the idea is that if something works once in a perfect context, in a perfect setting, done in a certain way, it's going to work again if it's done in that same context or setting and done in that same way, right? That that doesn't change, that when you mm -hmm. drop a ball, it bounces on a cement and it bounces a certain height and the same thing will occur. So fidelity is, is uh, super important for that. A lot of people sort of argued about what fidelity meant. And I think now we've kind of, the field has kind of settled on the definition provided by Wendy uh, Cross and um, Jennifer West back in 2011, which is that it consists of adherence and competence, right? With adherence being like, are you playing the notes the way you're supposed to be playing them, right? Or are you delivering the timeout in the way that you've been taught or read that it works? And then competence, which is, are you doing it in a skillful way? So are you adding that swing when you play mm -hmm. those notes, right? The very slight pauses that maybe can't even be noted on the musical sheet, or maybe the flourishes that you want to add that mm -hmm. actually aren't written down at all, but that actually make the song a little bit better. Or the times when like, maybe technically your son needs that time out but you know that if you give a smile and a wink instead it's just going to help the situation and help them learn in a much better way mm -hmm. you know the the way you describe that i mean when i, I agree it strikes me that competence is really hard and competence you know it, there's some things you can write in a manual right and it seems like I, I, and again you're more expert than i am so maybe you can say more clearly you know how accurate this is or where this falls short but it really makes me think that a lot of what we write in manuals is about adherence. And it's a lot easier to talk in a scientific report about adherence. And yet maybe competence is really the magic sauce that that really drives it and really makes it it come alive. I, I, am I missing something there? Is that no. kind of is that on point? Some people argue that for sure, but I think I think I like to think of competence more as kind of the um the ambient rhythm in the room, the ambient noise that mm -hmm. like everyone that is uh, producing an intervention expects you to already have, right? Mm -hmm. So they expect, so when you're learning, let's say trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, they're maybe focused on adherence. The competence is all the stuff that like you should have learned at like the help in your helping relationship class mm -hmm. or in your work on like how to provide empathic communication and mm -hmm. stuff like that, which in some ways kind of adherence itself, but like is just kind of understood as competence. And I know some people would disagree with me on this. Oftentimes too, though, I think it's referred to as like kind of the art side, but I feel mm -hmm. like uh, competence can be rated and can be judged still. And there, you know, you kind of know it when you see it. And this kind of gets us to this paper that we're looking at right here is that, you know, fidelity, because it plays such an important role in implementation science, we really have to, we have to measure it, right? Mm -hmm. um, because you have to know whether or not the intervention that you're doing is being done in an adherent way to how it was originally done and, and whether it's done in some sort of, with some sort of competence. But the Wait, can, I, can I interrupt you there please. for a second? You say it has to be done. And maybe the whole field's on board with that. 
But I got to say, are there people that argue you, you can't do fidelity, you can't measure it because every case is different and every client that I see or everybody I supervise, they need a different thing. And you can't possibly pin me down to one sort of recipe cookbook of what I'm supposed to do every time. I mean, it, there it, are some people, you know, those arguments. There's these meta-analyses out there where people have looked at all these different psychotherapies and they all have roughly the same effect size and say, okay, the secret sauce is actually working alliance. That's oftentimes mm -hmm. bantered about. And working alliance could be, I think, by some people considered a form of competence, right? How are you forming that working mm -hmm. alliance? And so, yeah, I think that argument could be made. I was talking more about Fidelity being essential for the concept, the scientific concept of the principle of the uniformity of nature, right? Mm -hmm. Which is that if you're going to take something that's been proven to work in one setting and apply it to another setting, and you're going to do that, you're, you're going to have to follow the original rules out as it was yeah. laid out. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't adjust that, doesn't mean there can't be adaptations. Uh, and in fact, maybe those adaptations are even more effective than it was originally done in that original setting. But if you hope to achieve those effect sizes at a bare minimum, you're going to have to be following the protocol as it was originally laid out. Mm -hmm. Just like if you want the basketball to bounce the same number of feet high on the ground, you have to drop it from the same height. You can't drop it from a lower height and expect it to bounce up in the same way mm -hmm. because that's the basic principle of uniformity of nature. Now, there are probably some people, metaphysical people, who don't believe in the principle of uniformity of nature. And even some physicists have kind of questioned that. I don't even want to get into that because if we start thinking about that too hard, it throws all of our jobs out the window. Yeah, I, I I never would want to pretend to be a physicist or any sort of physical scientist. I'm I'm or a philosopher by that by that means. So I can avoid both of those extremes. I mean, I ask in part because you know I've thought a lot about this question of fidelity when it comes to statistical analysis and when it comes to replication. These are conversations that are happening in the open science and replicability movement all the time. And I think you hear you hear a couple of arguments. You know, from I will say from quantitative people. They say, oh, well, you couldn't possibly do a fidelity measurement for, for regression or a, you know, a multi-level model or any specific statistical analysis because every model and every data set is unique and you have to be able to adapt and adjust and you couldn't possibly standardize what these things are. Everything we do is art. I mean, it's a statistical art, but that's sort of what it what it ends up sounding like. I, you know, personally, I I disagree. I think we could write a fidelity manual that would cover eighty percent of the cases, eighty percent of the time, and then the rest of it is like you you know, this competence, knowing how to adapt. The other way it comes up, which I think is interesting, is in replication studies. You know, there's like examples in replication where there's notable replication failures. You know, the assumption, I think, is that your fidelity manual for any one experiment or any study is the manuscript, right? It tell, it's supposed to tell you everything that they did so that you can replicate the experiment. And it turns out when people investigate a lot of replication failures, it finds out there's a lot of things that sometimes the investigators knew or really think matters because they've piloted their experiment a whole bunch, but they didn't have space to write in the paper. And then there's even other, to me, even more interesting examples where replication failures were only uncovered by like intensive work by the scientists to figure out what exactly was the difference. I, I remember one case where apparently it, it was in some sort of microbiology or chemistry lab where they even had investigators visiting each other's laboratories and they could not figure out why the protocols wouldn't replicate across labs. And it turns out they had the same uh, centrifuge made by the same manufacturer, but in different years. And it turns out the centrifuges spun at different rates 
And it was the difference in the spinning rates that caused the replication failure. So I, I just sort of want to give some background for what I'm thinking about when I think about fidelity and like what's the causal causal effect? Because there's a lot of other fields that are sort of wrestling with what's this key ingredient that, yeah, that well, is actually driving our effects. I'm reminded of Jurassic Park when Jeff Goldblum is talking about chaos theory and drops the little drop of water on his uh, on his fist and it goes one direction and he drops another one and goes a different direction or something. I don't know if I'm remembering exactly, but the point being is that, yes, there are an infinite number of variables and we can't keep track of all of them. And to try to follow a single manuscript is, is quite difficult and it's probably one of the reasons why we have a bit of a replication crisis. And we should definitely dedicate a... Uh, uh, an episode of, of this podcast to the replication crisis, because I think there's a lot to unpack there. However, we have to take steps in that direction. And one of those steps is to try to ensure, again, that the intervention that's being done is being done with some with some fidelity. Yeah. For sure. And Mike, I just got to tell you, every episode for me is an episode about the replication crisis. You're just not going to be able to get me off that. Horse. No, but I mean, it's... please do. Yeah. I mean, I well, so I've, I've told you this before, and I'll say this again in our, in our episodes as well. I think of implementation science as a form of something broader that probably doesn't even exist, but that I'm calling replication science. Does such mm-hmm. a thing exist? Is there is there a replication science? I mean, because... Every... Well, you could put science after anything and make it sound right. impressive. <laughs> so here, it, it exists now. Exactly. It is now. Out. All right. And I am the leader of replication science. Yep. I'll start the newsletter. I know, exactly. (laughs) Um, But because like every implementation is a form of replication. And in fact, I think if the fields of replicate, the people who study replication and people who study implementation got together, I think there could be some real magic there. For sure. um, Because some of the language, you know, we talk about, for instance, the difference between a conceptual replication versus a practical replication versus, you know, all these different Mm -hmm. types of replications. And those have real pragmatic differences in terms of how we're running our trials. And when we run an implementation trial, how we might speak about them and mm-hmm. interpret why we may or may not find the effects that were found in an yeah. original trial for sure. No, I like that framework. That's a really, that's a really cool framework. So let, so let's talk about this article that yeah. that you sent. Um, so I, I'll, I'll give it a shot at describing what they did and why it yeah. was important. Yeah. And why don't I'll, we Why don't we name it and name the authors first? You tell me, uh, yeah, why it's terrible. So this is uh, called improving the feasibility of fidelity measurement for community based quality assurance colon partial versus full session observations of supervisor adherence and competence. Now this comes in the journal Implementation Research and Practice, and it first appeared online in November of 2022. The first author is Jason E. Chapman and co-authors are Zoe Alley, Sonia Schoenwald, and that may be all, I have to click on view all authors. Yes, so it's uh, Chapman, Alley, and Schoenwald. And this I, this is a cool study. I don't like I said I don't know measure uh, implementation all that well, but I love measurement and I love this kind of stuff because th- this is a study questioning like what's the way best way to measure fidelity to intervention using real uh, live observations or re- observations of live recordings of supervision sessions, right? This was a study that was a controlled trial of multisystemic therapy MST. Um, this is an evidence-based treatment that's fairly well known. I could not tell you what it's about um, uh, personally, but I know I know it's I know it's evidence-based. Yeah, there's therapy involved. Research. There's multiple Multi systems. Multi-systems. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and and so this was a, a, an RCT of this, and this study looked at how supervisors of therapists what their level of fidelity was for basically providing supervision for therapists giving MST. Now it's important, you know, this supervision thing is important 
my understanding in implementation science, because this is one of supervisors are often a target of implementation. From what I see uh, from the implementation science side is a lot of people saying, look, we can target therapists, but there's a lot of them. And so we can maybe have more impact if we actually train the therapist, you know, train the supervisors, because otherwise we're having a bunch of therapists come to, you know, they need the expert supervision. They're the ones who need the training. They're the ones. So let's, this is almost, it reminds me, and maybe you would see this differently. It reminds me a little bit of a train the trainer model. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, one of the ahead. nice things about MST that uh, needs to be said is that they have a pretty rigorous supervision model, right? So their supervisors are highly trained and they follow a pretty rigorous protocol as compared to many other therapies. And so in this study, they rated audio tapes from um, 374 sessions from these 57 supervisors. And the question here, and this is one of the things I love, the question here is, can you get good fidelity ratings from partial sessions and different kinds of partial sessions rather than just scoring a full session. And why would that be a good question? Why do we need to answer that question? Dude, have you ever listened to a full <laughs> therapy or supervision oh, session? Oh my God, too many times. Yeah, I have myself having supervised, and, you know, and supervising is delightful. It's really, really wonderful, but it's one of those things you kind of need to do once, right? And so actually, you know, listening to entire therapy sessions or entire supervision sessions every time, it's just cost ineffective. And if we're going to implement any of these treatments at scale, we really have to find like, what's the quickest and dirtiest way we can actually get good information mm -hmm. um, from folks. Pro and probably good both for research as well as for supervision practice. So supervising the supervisors, right, for a real practical mm -hmm. implementation, but also for research, for knowing what might be leading to good practice in therapists, but it, just how expensive it would be to listen to every single supervision tape and code that on adherence and competence or fidelity as opposed to some other method. Right. Now, I, before we get into sort of what they, how they did it and what they found, because they, they had a couple of cool findings and a couple of cool things that they compared. I, maybe it's obvious, but maybe, Mikey, could you say, why don't we just like have the supervisors say what they did? You know, I, I do a lot of self-report research in, in, my, in my line of work. In fact, a lot of what I do, you know, the way I might do a study like this, if you just took my methods, would be right after the supervision session, I would have the supervisor rate what they did and maybe, or maybe even just describe what they talked about. You know, after the session, I might have the supervisor, you know, write down what they did because I want to get, you know, recordings of behavior. So why not do something like that? It'd be a lot cheaper. You could have a mobile device, checklist, something. Why totally. Well, we do that all the time for Fidelity. We have people maybe complete a checklist or a self-rating or maybe describe what they did in an open-ended form. And maybe that's coded. All of these things are highly feasible methods and highly efficient methods, right? But may not be highly reliable or highly valid measures. And the main reason is that, unfortunately, these people that we work with are human beings. And human beings suck because they have biases. I don't know about you, Kevin, but I oftentimes think that the product that I created is better than the product that somebody else has created because I created it. And it's so beautiful and wonderful to me. And I know I did it so well, right? Even though maybe I didn't actually do it really well or as well as I thought. I mean, we have these areas of unawareness about ourselves and our behaviors and our actions. And so we're just not very good self-reporters of the things that we think we're doing, especially if we're being held up as some sort of a test, right? Even whether it's for researchers or for our employers, if we think that they're going to be evaluated on something, we may inflate a little bit what that thing is in terms of how well we thought we did it.
you know, for some for some things, you know, the self-report, the bias self-report is good enough. So for a lot of the work that I do, you know, the evidence is that people are fine. They're not perfect, especially in the work I do, like their rank order consistent. So, you know, there's some, been some cool studies about like, are, can people accurately report how much marijuana they're smoking? And, you know, it turns out people are not great at guessing number of grams that they've I, smoked. I feel like the more marijuana that they smoke, the less accurate they're going to well, be. Well, that's also, yes, that's also <laughs> a finding. But, you know, there's been some really cool work out of Colorado where people actually did research in a pot shop. And, you know, it turns out people are pretty bad. They're biased at how much mar- how much they would roll a joint and how much pot they would put in a joint. But they were rank order consistent. So the people that said they like rolled fatter joints, you know, consistently guesstimated you know, more marijuana than people who rolled thinner joints. So, you know, there, there's stuff like that. But in, I, I could see with this, it's a lot more important that you get a really accurate sense of what people are actually doing in a session, because you could imagine things like performance feedback and client outcomes. There's all sorts of like real, you know, it, like if you're not, if you're getting a biased sense uh, and if people are over-reporting, this might be one of those things where the measure becomes the target. And then all of a sudden you're, you're not getting, you know, people are over-representing how good they're doing because they know what you, you want to hear. And then your patients are, your trial isn't working as well as you want, or your patients aren't getting better versus doing, you know, videotape feedback of some kind, you both get a sense of what they're doing and you can see opportunities for intervention and training and sort of, hey, I noticed you doing this and let's work on mm-hmm. this, mm-hmm. work on this now, skill. Now, there have been other options besides self-report or observation. Like those are the two extremes, right? Mm-hmm. And one is the cheapest, but probably the least valid, I would guess. And the other one is the most expensive, but and probably mm-hmm. the most valid. Uh, there have been uh, options where we they've used vignettes and then they have kind of a pop quiz about what would you do next as a therapist mm-hmm. or how would you handle this situation? Mm-hmm. There's been situations where they have mock participants. In fact, I was involved in a study with Shannon Dorsey, our colleague, our mm-hmm. good friend and colleague, where they actually had, they used behavioral rehearsals and they had therapists complete these over the phone with research assistants who were trained to behave like clients. And then we took those recordings and actually coded those. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there are other options, right. but I think those options exist on a a continuum right basically of expense and difficulty and quality yeah and of course the challenge with mock recordings you know and model patients which i've also done some work with like motivational interviewing and model patients and is you sort of get one shot at it right versus either self-report or videotape sessions you can keep do you know you can use this as behavioral improvement uh, markers or as like practice so so what's cool about this study is they compared from what i can tell three different ways of me- of recording sessions and compared it to the full session score. So they, so they had, you sort of would view the full supervision session and rate it for fidelity, get a score for what it is for each of the supervisors. And then they looked at, okay, do we, what, what does it look like if we just randomly grab 15 minute sessions from people? What if we look at the very first case they have, right? Fresh out of training, ready to roll. If we just, just supervise the first case and get, and get, the look at the full sample of the first case and what if we just get a partial sample of that first full case well i think I, so i was a little confused by this and maybe we need to look at this together i think that they were having supervision sessions 
And that first case one was that they looked at the very first case they reviewed in the supervision in during that super because they said the average length of time was 11 minutes for that. Mm -hmm. So that's what that's what tipped me off. They're like, oh, I'm they're not just talking about their first case fresh out of school or fresh out of training. They're talking about the first case in that supervision session, which may have differed from tape to tape. It may have been a different first case versus. And so like that's a feasible thing. Let's just let's just listen to the supervision tape listen to the first case mm-hmm. and code on that versus let's take a randomly. And I think they were just trying to come up with something that's more feasible than a random 15 minutes if it was applied in the real world. Yes. And I think what's confusing about this is they have these figures where they talk about first case partial yes. sample. Yes. And so first case full sample. What's that, the difference? Yeah, I think, and I never quite figured this out for sure. I think the first case partial means they took one first case rating per supervisor versus the full sample was they took one first case for every single session that the supervisor submitted. Yeah. So the problem with that is they didn't need to do that and they should have just done the full sample and corrected for clustering and multi-level modeling. And well, maybe they did, the authors... they did correct for clustering, but I think they were hoping to get maybe more, uh, you know, tighter statistics. But mm-hmm. yes, yeah. yeah, yeah, no, yeah, I, I recognize they did that. I just want, I, I sometimes you get this sometimes where reviewers are like, I don't know about this multi-level modeling. Let me just let me just see it with one one at a time. Yeah. Let me just, yeah. So I could see that sort of yeah. happening. You know, they don't they get anxious about the shrinkage that happens in multi-level modeling. Frankly, who doesn't get anxious about shrinkage? Ah, uh, we all do. Um, but um, yeah, so so what's cool? What's cool about this is they have these beautiful visualizations. I don't know, you know, in one line of my research, I don't know if you know this, but I've really gotten into data visualizations. I've had this outstanding graduate student, Connor McCabe, who got really interested in helping the field do a better job of visualizing interactions, because nobody can look at a table and sort of say, "Oh, alpha times beta is 0.013," and I, you know, that's significant. I know what that means. Nobody, nobody can read that. Let me correct that. I could read that and I could tell you what it is because I'm a t- total, total quant nerd. But, you know, your average researcher, they don't know how to interpret that and they shouldn't. It's ridiculous. So we worked on improving visualizations and I won't say more about what that is, but I love these visualizations because it accomplishes, I think, all of the things that you want in a good visualization, except a couple. But, I, uh, but it gives you just with one glance, it gives you exactly what you want to know from their finding and exactly the finding. So they have these, you know, you can look it up. I recognize this is a podcast, so it's really terrible for me to describing, for describing a visualization. Next, I'm going to try to tap dance about architecture and we'll see how that goes. <laughs> so, you know, you can imagine the X and the Y axis. And essentially, there's a straight diagonal across the X and Y axis that represents the reference, which is what you would get if you coded the full supervision case, right? So the X axis and the Y axis go from zero to one, and it's relating the full session score to the partial session score. And so you can imagine like a, a perfect 45 degree angle is, you know, a correlation of one and that's their reference. And then overlaid across that, they have these great other visualizations of the lines of what happens when you code a 15 minute segment, what happens when you code, and then what happens when you code just the first case. And it gives you very clearly sort of how close or far away those are those sort of different ways of sampling fidelity, how close or far they are from the full session score. And and the short answer is they're good, but not great. That's how I would interpret it. They're both sort of, you know, somewhat depressed um, lines, not at a 45 degree angle. And importantly, there's very little difference among them. It kind of doesn't matter whether you get look at the 15 minute score or the, um, or, or just look at the first case, you sort of seem to get about the same information. 
Well, and the way that they're not great is really important as well in that those scores that came from the samples, the partial, basically the not full recording, when those scores were high, they overestimated the real score. And when those scores were low, they underestimated the real score. Did I get that right? Yeah, I think that's right. So, so you also get some information about sort of bias, right? This is something we think of in testing and sort of really just model fitting in general, right? Where is your, is there a sweet spot where your model, you know, your model's really predicting the outcome really well? And like you said, are there spots, which all is very common at the extremes, like, are you over predicting or under predicting so that your, your guess is going to be wrong and, you know, and is your guess wrong in a, a sort of reliable direction because your model is reliably wrong? Mm-hmm. Now, one thing I, I thought was like, if you know what those are and you have good predictions for that, even though I recognize there's standard error on either side of that, but if you have those, you could still engage in these shorter coding sessions and then actually statistically adjust your rating to better fit what uh, reality was. Could you not? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the, you know, the question I would have, and this is actually, okay, I will go back to, you know, what I wish there were in visualizations like this is some better sense of uncertainty, right? So if we have the confidence bands around these and also, you you know, the data, because sometimes you get this poor prediction when you don't actually have a lot of people at the, a lot, and this is very common with these things. Like you might not have a lot of people at the extremes. It's possible that, you know, there weren't a lot of people who had very high fidelity scores or very low. You know, I might expect in a trial like this, you don't, there's not a lot of people with very low fidelity scores. But if you did have enough data in these models and you could reliably show bias, you probably could do some kind of bias correction on it. Or even, again, if we think about this as a practical tool, right, if I'm a supervisor and I sort of say I do a snippet and I see somebody like doesn't look that great, I might say, you know, their, their fidelity looked pretty high and maybe it's even higher than it is. If I know sort of it, what neighborhood I'm expecting to see bias high or low. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. So major take home here is that as we saw before, the more energy and effort you put into fidelity coding and, and observation, the better quality it's going to be. And that retains here, but that doing some sampling does retain, you know, some validity, but with some bias, especially at the extremes, but I'm going to throw a curveball at you. And I didn't recognize this until I probably looked at this paper for the fourth or fifth time. And I spent a lot of time like digging into it. Could it this effect simply be due to regression of the mean. And here's what I'm here's where I'm going with this. In those shorter sessions where where they're sampling where they're only coding a sample, right? You're going to have more random error, right? And that random error is going to be biased in certain directions on either side of the curve, right? And this should fit exactly as we'd expect where the random error is going to be biased in a way that it's going to be the the true mean is going to be lower than what you'd expect at those high at those high angles and higher than what you'd expect at those low angles at those low edges right and so this probably occurs in in fact it definitely occurs in every kind of sampling that we always do it's why sampling more is better because we're always tightening those errors on either side of the curve. But the fact is that those errors are going to be in a certain direction on the higher end versus the lower end of the curve. Do I have this right or am I getting this wrong? No, I think I think you could be totally right. Um, yeah, I mean, it's really possible that, you know, and I think this is something where descriptive statistics would really, I don't, I've been looking through the paper and I don't really yep. see them There's to no really mean. understand like what's the real distribution. Yep. 
you know, you run into these problems in, I mean, statistical problems, not like problems in, in a lot of fidelity trials, or at least in my experience, where you train people up to competence and you're sort of only looking at the higher end of competence because you've trained them and, you know, they come out well. It's not what we're not taking people off the street and say, read this MST manual and then, okay, there's a patient, you know, which, I mean, maybe that's something we ought to try as a, <laughs> as a field. You know, so I, you know, so maybe this range restriction coming into play. I mean, I keep wondering about the distribution of variables, like, you know, how how much representation is there? You know, they're I'm assuming they're treating everything as normal, and maybe these distributions are really non-normal, non-linear, because they're bound. Maybe sometimes they're bounded by zero and one, and when you have that happen, there's all sorts of funky interplays that can happen between variables. But to your to your point, it's really possible that you see some of this overestimation, underestimation, like you said, just because when you're sampling a snippet and if somebody looks worse than you, you know, worse than usual or worse than other people, you know, I, then maybe what you're looking at is a particularly bad session or a particularly rough session and they actually get better. And I think vice versa could be true. You brought up this idea of like, you know, could you have a bias correction on this, right? Yeah. And, you know, if you were to use this in practice, what you might do is when you get scores, fidelity scores from samples that are particularly outside the range of certainty, right? So like in, in I alluded to this earlier, but in this um, uh, measurement framework called item response theory, you think about tests and items giving you, you know, they talk this item information curve or test information curve. And the idea is like in a certain area range of like fidelity, for example, you know, our test can give us a lot of information. And then when you're outside of that range, you know, our test is not actually not very helpful. You know, so if, if, if this was like a fidelity test, right, on, on MST, um, just imagine you had a fidelity test on MST that had people sort of um, check off how much knowledge they have of MST. If I gave that test to, a, you know, if I went across the street to the bus stop for the number eight in Seattle, and I gave it to somebody standing at the bus stop, they're going to fail all those well, items. They'll probably stab you first, and then they'll fail all those items. Yes, it, it, probably in that order, um, which just shows you how both violent and conscientious people are in Seattle, because they will both <laughs> stab you and take your wallet, but then fill out your survey, which I, you know, I find quite refreshing. You know, and, and that's just because they have no exposure. There's no reason to expect them. So that, t that test is useless for a random schmo waiting for the number eight, but it might be useful, you know, for a, you know, somebody who's been to an MST training, right? Or in the beginning of an MST training. So that, that's a little bit of the idea of, of information and how, in, you know, tests give you information at just about a certain part of a theoretical distribution. And maybe that's something that we're seeing here too, is that the partial sessions, you know, give you more information in certain ranges of fidelity than others. I, again, I think it's something that I couldn't answer by just looking at this study, but these are the things I think about. So that's, you know, that makes me think that, you know, if you get one of these scores that's sort of outside of the optimal information range for this measurement method, you could just use it as a, as a prompt. It's not to say we know something about this person, but say, let's get more information. It's a screener. It's a 15-minute screener if you're applying yeah. this to like uh, clinical clinical work. And then you know whether or not you need to more do a deeper dive. I think that's an excellent point. I think that's an excellent point. And I think these yeah. kinds of like um, sampling for Fidelity can do that. Not particularly helpful for research all the time, though. When in research studies, we do want really good reliability at all ends of the scale. Although mm -hmm. I recognize we don't always have that. In fact, usually we don't have that. You know, though, you could extend that, right? So imagine you go, you do a study and you have the most cost-effective design is we're going to go into the field and we're going to measure fidelity. 
And you use the same principle that, you know, if Mike, I, I view one of your sessions and you get a score that's right in the sweet spot, uh, then I'm, I'm done. I don't need to see any more. And you have an adaptive design where for people who are sort of, you know, you don't get a good estimate for, you go observe more and more sessions until you get a reliable trait estimate of, of fidelity. You could also imagine a design that does that for everybody, but then only uses as many measurements as you need to get something that's that's reliable. I, 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 that could be, you know, I don't know if I've, I don't know if people have done that, but that's just something you could apply even in research. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I agree. All right. Well, there you have it. Fidelity. Are there any, I mean, I recognize we're kind of running out our time here. Is there, are there any other things that you want to talk about either regarding this paper or just regarding fidelity and implementation science in general? I don't think so. I feel like we've just scratched the surface on mm -hmm. fidelity and some of the, all of these questions about what is fidelity and how do you get at it? I, I just want to compliment the authors on this paper for writing a really neat paper and really, uh, you know, showing how you could do this. Um, and, and I think thinking about some of the questions we all think about when we're designing studies or even doing interventions of like, do I have to, <laughs> do I really have to? And, and like, what's the best way there's, I feel like there's so little good information about, you know, these sometimes feeling like arbitrary study design choices. Like, do I, can I get away with 15 minutes of supervision? Do I need to do an hour for my measure? Do I have to do an observational measure or can I rely on self-report or, you know, I mean, there, there is good research out there, but I feel like every study like this, that's about some of these methodological choices, it, you know, it's important and, and frankly, under-recognized, I think, by funding agencies. There's not a lot of funding agencies that want to sort of, nail down these methods. They want the sort of spiderweb models that pretend that we have causality and really help us understand. But I think, you know, just to get back on my soapbox, one of the reasons we have often have a problem is we haven't spent enough time doing work like this, really figuring out how much information are we getting from our measures? Are, are our procedures really working the way we think they're working? Are we getting, are we measuring the things we think we're measuring? So I just think it's really cool to see work like this and I'm happy to highlight it on our yeah. Totally, totally agree. Love this work. Um, I've been uh, aware of Jason Chapman's work for a long time now because of um, because of my colleague Shannon Dorsey, and then Sonia Schoenwald is, of course, just a legend in the field, uh, more broadly broadly writ as well as, especially now in implementation science. Um, and so it's fantastic. In fact, we should try to get both of them on the show at one point or another. Um, I uh, I agree, and I feel like the uh, the real questions that people have to ask themselves around fidelity and just measurement. Is, are no different than what we ask around measurement in general, which is how important is it to our study? And therefore, and then that should be related to how reliable and valid do we want this measure to be? Mm -hmm. And it's always going to cost more money and be more burdensome and more intensive to get more reliable and valid data. Of course, it's not a perfect correlation. There may be some loss at the top or at the at the tail end of those things. Um, I do really like this idea of kind of trying to balance um, the really intensive expense of observation mm -hmm. by just taking samples. And I love that we now have data to see exactly what the association is between um, what the real score would be and what a uh, sampled score would be in that situation. And I might suspect that these exact same results would apply to a um, clinical intervention rather than supervision. Uh, I don't see any reason why they want to generalize. Yeah. Oh. You know, the only caveat I'd put on that is I think we're looking at a special case here where the validity is um, 
kind of understood and known, right? We're looking at like, the question is like, are, is the supervisor in the session doing what they're supposed to be doing? And we can observe them doing it and rate, are they doing what they're supposed to be doing? So we have a fairly straightforward one-to-one -one correspondence with our sense of validity and, and the measure and the measure and what we can observe, right? Uh, it's close to I, I, what I would say is objective measurement because you can sort of count behaviors and look at people and it, and it's literally, you know, you're not just taking a snippet out of even, you know, daily life. You are sort of looking at the thing they're supposed to be doing while they're supposed to be doing it. There's lots of other examples where, you know, sometimes the more expensive measurement is actually worse because the validity work hasn't been done on it. So I think we should, I would just caution the audience to really think carefully about what we really know about what we're measuring and how what we think we're measuring, how well does it actually correspond to what we're using to measure it? That's just that's just sort of my plug from a measurement nerd side. I think that's totally well taken. I think it's an important aspect. And sometimes in implementation science, we're forced to uh, build the wings on the airplane while it's in flight, right? And that oftentimes we're faced with a situation where fidelity measurement does exist or does not mm -hmm. exist, or if it does exist, we don't know the psychometrics for it. And frankly, like oftentimes in these complex interventions, we don't even know which of the aspects of the complex intervention are the effective components, right? right. So what parts of the fidelity are actually important? And so, again, we're kind of putting the wings on the plane as we fly it, and we're kind of faced with the, that dilemma. But it's what what we have to do. Right. Otherwise, we'd be spending five years at a time testing each individual mechanism. And, you know, we, we 50 years later, we'll, we'll find out the one that works and everybody yeah. who, you know, it matters to will have moved on anyway. Yeah. yeah. It's a real challenge. I agree. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you liked today's podcast, please share it with your friends, colleagues, and lovers, regardless of their fidelity status. If you agreed with our comments today, you can sing our praises on Twitter at ThatISPodcast or KMKing underscore psych. If you disagreed with our comments, please feel free to post about it on Truth Social. All of the comments and opinions expressed during today's show are our own. They are well-reasoned and insightful, and therefore are not necessarily endorsed by our grant funders or employers. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time. You tell me, uh, yeah, why it's terrible.